0: Trigger warning, this podcast contains deep and detailed discussions about self-harm and drug abuse, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting, so please listen with caution. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start much-needed conversations. I am your host, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have a natter and chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. <laughs> My special guest for this week's episode is a sibling of a very dear friend of mine, Amy Roberts. I met Amy through my best mate and long-time friend of the party, James Lamb, and today I'm interviewing one of Amy's many siblings, Alex. Amy is also one of the few people who's got more siblings than me. Amy has supported Alex's mental health for a few years, and Alex is a testament to the idea that recovery from trauma is possible, and you can, with the right support, treatment, and good people around you, overcome the difficulties you are going through in life. In this episode, we discuss Alex's childhood and the relationship he's had with his father, both the highs and the lows. We also discuss Alex's journey with addiction and recovery, including his difficulties with marijuana and cocaine. I'm in huge admiration of Alex for talking about this, and I hope his openness and journey can be an example to any of you venters if you are struggling with addiction yourselves and know that things can and will get better. So this is how my conversation with Alex Roberts went. (music) alex roberts welcome to the just check in pod mate i apologize that your journey over here was so wet we are recording on a very Uh, rainy day outside you were soaked as you came in (laughs) no the weather's weather's not your fault it's all right i should have known the risks (laughs) i'm very glad to be checking in with you mate how's things how's everything going on with you
1: things are going really well at the moment yeah slowly getting through my uni course i'm about to sort of buy my first place actually amazing so that's pretty fun it's it's exciting a little daunting Mm -hmm. a lot of things to organize and uh I'm going to be a landlord, so basically a, yeah. lot, a lot of organization involved in that. A lot, of, lot of admin, yeah, 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 and a lot of uh, a lot of bills to pay.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, that's the real world, mate. That's the real world. I'm really glad to be checking with you, mate. I hope this pod doesn't just help you. I hope it helps your family. I hope it helps anyone listening with the issues that we're going to discuss. So, without further ado, shall we start the show? Yeah, let's get on with it. Let's start the pod by talking about your journey, Alex. So. First off, I ask all my special guests this question first. Tell me about early life, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Alex we meet here? Back when I was a kid, I would say that I didn't have a lot of self-esteem. Growing up, I, I was one of six,
1: and so there was a lot of, sort of competition and feeling yeah. like you're... I said in the you're,
0: intro, you're the, one of the few yeah. families few families got more siblings than me. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. yeah, it definitely makes you feel as a kid, whether it's true or not, you feel like you're being compared to other people, and that there's a, a certain element of wanting to shine a little more than others and try and make yourself a bit more known and press the parents more than the others I guess. Was that
0: innate or was it something that you all kind of did unconsciously or?
1: I, I think it was somewhat innate to the degree that any child would want to impress their parents really. Growing up you know I, I wasn't very popular I didn't really get on too well with a lot of people and I, I was very very like nerdy and shy and withdrawn yeah, I, d- I didn't, like, have a terrible childhood, but I didn't have, like, a great one, I wouldn't say.
0: Yeah, okay, I get that. And I think for a lot of people, they probably relate to that, you know, yeah, that, that d- yeah, same sort of story. Like, yeah. not either unpopular or not popular, but sort of just middling sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. When did that status or feeling or dynamic within yourself change then? I'd say in my, in my late teens, I guess I started to accept some of the things that I
1: thought were bad about myself, like not being very popular or... Having interests that were considered quite nerdy, I thought they were like quite bad things and I just kind of stopped caring when I was a late teen. But it wasn't until I was in my 20s that I really kind of embraced that whole thing mm. of like, no, nah, this is who I am.
0: Yeah. So you ran away from the start, like a lot of us do, if we sort of picked on for those interests and then you came back to them, embraced them once. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah.
1: definitely. Yeah. I sort of definitely tried to hide them and stuff. <laughs> you know, as a teenager, it's like, no, I, I don't like this. <laughs> <laughs> you know like playing video games but like hiding that like ds down i went to boarding school so it was like hiding the ds down the side of my bed right because i didn't want people to see like i was playing
0: like super childish nintendo games (laughs) (laughs) the two main things you wanted to talk about on this podcast alex was addiction and the relationship with your dad so let's start with the first one can you talk about your experience of this growing up then and what you wanted to discuss.
1: Yeah, sure. When I was in my late teens, I'm sure a lot of parents would say I fell in with a bad crowd. You know, just kids who kind of skipped classes and smoked cigarettes and stuff like that. And very quickly I got into weed and it felt almost like it was going to happen anyway. But I absolutely loved it because it was a form of uh, escapism from... General life or yeah, issues you were having? Or... Yeah, teenage issues, issues of you know self-esteem that came from family issues or from issues at school yeah you know i just wasn't a very happy teenager and that was just this thing that
0: it was a vehicle for it
1: yeah it, made, it just made me feel a lot more uh, at
0: that, peace at, or at, sort at of peace tranquil, yeah or? yeah
1: i guess there was a lot of background noise in my head and it just kind of like got rid of a lot it, of it, it, it mellowed it out, out. Yeah. yeah
0: so when was the point when it started to get or go from something that you did after lessons or something that was just like a social drug essentially to mm-hmm. something that was a bit more self-reliant on
1: Well, I I lived with my mom until I was 21, and I think it was that availability of it that meant that I could just really indulge in it, and then that's what caused it to, I think, become the habit, Mm. is that there was just a several-year period when I first got into it, following that, you know, getting into it, there was so much of it available that Mm -hmm. I was able to just really easily get, you know, unchecked, get into this habit of just smoking way too much. You know, every night, you know, I'd go to bed thinking, well, I'm not high enough, I should smoke one more before I go to bed, because I i can so know. it wasn't
0: just a sleeping cap it wasn't just a nightcap it was a quite an extreme night cap essentially yeah yeah, yeah but it was
1: the, i think there was also an element of preventing the horrors of the next day you know it's like oh well i'm enjoying myself right now and i'll just make this day last a little longer mm. until tomorrow because tomorrow's gonna suck again
0: going back to your dad then what was the relationship like as you kind of grew up you said obviously you were one of six so obviously yeah. a lot of competitiveness a lot of fights I imagine yeah all the time yeah so how did that play into the dynamic with him and what was that like as you emerged from sort of boyhood to adulthood
1: he was quite physical with his punishments and he wasn't around too much and when he was home he was you know again he was being quite angry and he'd kind of call people in one by one and you know dole out the punishments and then everyone would leave crying and then you'd be like oh shit I'm next (laughs) um I I think a lot of the self-esteem issues did obviously come from that that Mm. relationship with my dad and I've spent a lot of time trying to sort that out as an adult. But I think that a lot of the issues I had that came from my dad and my self-esteem issues, they were really massively shaping me as as I was growing up and becoming an adult. And they kind of bled into all areas of my life. Sort of like
0: a spider diagram, sort of making their way into each area. Yeah, yeah. A a very bad spider diagram. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And it was
1: all, I think that that was kind of like the core of a lot of my issues and probably a lot of the reason why addiction was so easy for me.
0: Your mum and dad divorced as well. What year was that? And were you able to sort of manage that okay? What was the experience like then?
1: I was about sixteen, so it was about two thousand and eight ish, right? And you know, it was it was all
0: right actually. Well, that's good.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I, I'm sure for a lot of kids, it's like traumatic. But I was I was sixteen, seventeen ish at the time. I was more worried for my younger siblings because I knew that it would it would be more hard on them you know grown up not very much liking my dad so and plus he wasn't really around too much so i the divorce wasn't actually changing too much for me
0: so it wasn't like a big shock to the system um, or something no, it very was... traumatic right? no
1: i mean for me actually life continued fairly normally
0: right okay you told me off there you had a very important phone conversation with him recently
1: yeah yeah back in um june i think yeah it
0: was. do you feel comfortable talking about what transpired obviously you don't have to give all the details but was it a positive conversation
1: Yeah, it was generally a positive conversation. I I called him up. We didn't have very good contact with each other over years. And I just called him up and said, hey, let's just discuss why that's the case. And, you know, I've got some things I want to get off my chest. And I did it more for my own sake, not to repair the relationship between both of us, but more just so that I would have that peace of mind Mm. that I've said what I want to say.
0: So closure. Yeah, exactly.
1: It wasn't so much for him as it was for me. And how did
0: you feel after it?
1: I felt at the the time, like maybe 70% of what I'd said had been rebutted or he defended himself in a way that I thought he should have maybe accepted some responsibility. But ultimately, I I came out of the conversation fairly positive because I was like, you know what? I didn't expect this conversation to go exactly the way I wanted it to go. You know, and he's never going to accept everything I'm going to say in the same way that I wouldn't accept everything he would have to say. And, you know, I thought that I got enough. I would say I got enough out of it.
0: And what's your relationship like now?
1: It's still fairly similar. But I haven't really spoken to him about it since too much because I realised after the conversation that all the things I still thought I wanted to say to him, I didn't really need to say to him. I just wanted to say to him because I wanted to hurt his feelings and that was that's unnecessary.
0: Yeah, I get that. Let's move on to self-worth because you mentioned it a little bit previously. You also had a lot of issues with self-harm, if I'm right in saying, Alex. Uh,
1: so yeah, a bit when I, when I was a teenager. Yeah. yeah.
0: Do you feel comfortable talking about that? And obviously you don't have to go into graphic details, but... Was it stereotypical forms? Was it overeating? Was it undereating? Or was it the substances that you mentioned? How did it take Uh, shape?
1: There was a little bit of physical self-harm in that, you know, I have a, a few faint scars on my arm from cutting myself and a couple from, like, burning myself with cigarettes and things like that, but nothing too sort of seriously visible. I think as soon as I found marijuana and other drugs, then that replaced any sort of physical harm.
0: You said to me the acts that you did, and some of them ended up being quite violent acts as well, like you mentioned... You didn't like yourself and I punished myself because I thought I deserved it. So why did you think you deserved it? I'd say that
1: at that point in my life, I was suffering a lot emotionally and I didn't think that I was worthy of the effort it takes to achieve some sort of success or happiness in life. Mm. I almost thought that I was here like taking someone else's space, someone else. I wish someone else would have been born instead of me and that feeling of like, I shouldn't be here and I'm denying someone else the chance to be here Mm. That. I think that's partly where that feeling of I don't deserve it comes in.
0: It was a suicidal ideation in some respects, but maybe not to an extent that some people would have plans and stuff. It was more you were seeing yourself as not being worthy of being in this planet.
1: Yeah, 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 definitely. There weren't any active thoughts of, yeah, I should do something to myself, but mm. there was definitely a desire to not be here.
0: Yeah. I've read a lot about addiction and self harm through the work of Gabor mate Alex, and he talks a lot about working with people who are addicted or have been self-harming and the question is always he asks why the pain what did it give you so what did the self-harm give you at that point
1: i don't know i think to some degree there was that feeling of i'm punishing myself and i deserve this and it it doesn't feel great but at the same time i know it's it's what i deserve but then sometimes afterwards it would almost serve as a reminder that my thoughts that I'm having aren't actually that valid or they are kind of stupid. It was almost like I'd look at like a cut on my arm that I'd made and almost feel embarrassed by it Mm. and think like if someone else saw this I wouldn't proudly tell them why Mm. I'd done it. It's not a badge of honour, is it? Yeah, exactly. You know, in the same way that when you cry and afterwards you feel better about it because you've kind of had that release. And I think it was a release of some kind. It was, you know, afterwards I'd feel a little bit better about it for what, I don't know exactly what you know all the reasons but there was a sense of
0: a temporary uh, release yeah. yeah it
1: was yeah. like oh i've done that i oh, wasn't that a bit stupid oh, i feel a bit better now
0: i used to self-harm for a very long time alex in, in various methods and the one that stayed with me the longest or i, I couldn't kick basically mm. was nail biting i used to do it really severely and it only mm-hmm. took me therapy to recognize that it was self-harm in the first place and then work through the reasons why and etc etc it used to annoy me when people said to me well when you want to stop you'll stop or just stop did you ever get that, and how did that make you feel, if so? If people saw your self-harm scars, for example, or found out that you were self-harming.
1: Well, luckily, I never heard too much about that when it came to the self-harm. I think, you know, when it comes to the addiction stuff, especially with smoking, people have said to me, yeah, when you're ready, you'll stop, or the reason that you, you're struggling right now is because you're just not ready, and that, you know, in a year or two, when you're a bit more mature, it will all just make sense, and it will, you'll just drop it like that. Or, like, the right woman will come into your life. Or, like, or you'll move out and you'll just want to mature. You know, it's just not that easy. It's like, you know, I'm almost 30. I think if that moment was going to come, it would have come by now.
0: Or you would have developed it yourself. Yeah. So when was the moment you stopped self-harming then? Or you realized you needed to stop, maybe? Or both? Is that including addiction? Yes. we we'll include addiction in this as well.
1: The last time I self-harmed was when I was a teenager. And... Like I said, it was as soon as I had that feeling of drugs, that was my then go-to kind of self-harming. But it wasn't until August of this year that I really had my last... You know, I mean, like, to be honest, I've I've still had a smoke every now and then. I don't know, that feels like a much more manageable kind of issue that I'm still... The
0: regularity isn't there anymore. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's not anywhere near as, as much of an issue as it used to be. But when I was really getting into cocaine, that was kind of like my biggest problem. And I last did it in February of last year but then I didn't stop having thoughts about it. And I was thinking about it every day until this August.
0: Wow. Okay. Let's talk about that then. So, and you've mentioned it already. The second part of your mental health journey is addiction and recovery from addiction. And you've already spoken about weed, but you also said you had chronic depression as a teenager. So I'm imagining the weed didn't help that.
1: No, I mean, I I thought it was was (laughs) at the time you tell yourself, I'm really happy. Life is great. And I'm, I'm seeing all this stuff in my head and I'm, making these friends and, and then you keep doing that for months and months and, you know, and after the initial kind of like couple months of fun wears off and then you're not smoking to like elevate yourself anymore. You're smoking yourself to kind of bring yourself up to zero.
0: Because it made you more creative, I'm right in saying. But it felt like <laughs> it at first, yeah. I mean,
1: I think it did. I'm pretty certain it did. I still find that if I don't smoke for a number of weeks or a month or two and then I have a joint, then, you know, I, I do find that it does help me creatively somewhat. But at the same time, nowhere near enough to the degree that it warrants doing it all the time mm. or doing it on a regular basis, I'd say.
0: And then when it comes to stronger drugs, so obviously you talked about cocaine and this was where the most difficult relationship, I guess, with addiction came from. And you said so you are addicted from 2018 to 2020. So how did it start? And then when did it become something that wasn't just once in a blue moon recreationally?
1: I'd done it a few times before I was in my mid-20s, I'd done it a few times, once here, once there, you know. And it wasn't very good, and I didn't really think it was that great and didn't have any interest in it. But after a birthday party, someone asked, you know, if they were, does anyone know anyone who sells it? And I ended up going with a friend to this dealer's house. We got some. I got on really well with them. And that was kind of the beginning of the, the problem is that the fact that I got on so well with the, the dealer <laughs> and became actually quite good friends with them, it just meant that I was even more likely to go around and spend time there and hang out.
0: So the dealer was your social gateway almost in a little bit.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It was almost like it justified my visitations more. You know, it's like, well, you know, I'm also just I'm just hanging out with a friend (laughs) as well, you know. And it went from once or twice a week to I can do this three or four times a week.
0: I mean for the listeners who don't know, cocaine is a very Moorish drug. Which means that once you do it, especially if you're drunk or you've got a bit of alcohol in your system, it basically like it feels like it's sucking up all of the alcohol in your system. And then when the high wears off, you're basically ready for bed. So you feel like you need to do more to keep the high sustained. Yeah. Is that how it felt for you?
1: Definitely. It's like if you're on coke, you need to drink and smoke three, four times as much to feel the same feeling. I had savings and I just blew through it. And I think I kept saying to myself that I spent so much on cocaine. But actually, I think so much of that money was just alcohol and just beer. Hmm. Just because I, I was drinking so much more and I could drink so much more. So your
0: your tolerance went up
1: massively I think while I was doing it anyway it felt but I was on it so often there wasn't a time when I was drinking and I wasn't doing cocaine for a long period of time.
0: At the height of the addiction you were staying up until sometimes 2-3am high and then sort of going to work the next day obviously sleep deprived hopefully no one one clocked that you were high still what was your mental health state like at this point?
1: It was pretty bad I'd just come out of a long-term relationship and I. Really, for the first time ever, I thought I was kind of going on my own little holiday or uh, having a little trip. Um, well, you're
0: doing it some sort of trip. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it wasn't the right one.
1: <laughs> you know, like I was treating myself. That's what it felt right. like. You know, for the first time in my life, I feel good.
0: I deserve this. Single, free, and independence, but not, yeah, in, the, not but, in the best sense. But,
1: but it was almost, it was more from a place of, yeah, fuck it. Life sucks anyway. Like, mm. you know, I think I was hiding so many issues underneath and. Was there because, a
0: nihilism there? Yeah, hugely,
1: yeah. yeah. I really just kind of felt like I was letting go of any kind of cares for myself or the future or anything. Uh, you
0: were clearly masking a lot of issues that you weren't resolving.
1: Yeah, there was there was huge issues bubbling under the surface and I was just completely ignoring them. And Actually, I think with many of them making them worse.
0: Was the relationship breakdown then the trigger for that spiral, would you say? Or not? Or was it just a factor that precipitated it?
1: It was an event that happened to coincide. I kind of very abruptly ended the relationship. And I was also just in a state of mind at the time to kind of say fuck it in life in general.
0: The cocaine use obviously was getting to a point where it was eating into your finances. And cocaine is a very expensive habit. Of all the party drugs Mm, you can do, cocaine is probably the most expensive one. Did it cause you any financial anxiety?
1: A fair bit, yeah. There were some months where... The last three or four days of the month, I wouldn't have enough money to afford the tube to work. And so I would have to borrow money from one of my siblings. I'd call them up and say, oh my God, I'm having some money troubles and can I borrow 50 quid or something and I'll pay you back on payday and I'd pay them back. And then the next month it would be like Same another 50 before. quid. And after yeah. a few months, it's "Oh, Can I borrow a hundred quid now? And and yeah, it eventually, when I say eventually, very quickly it got to this problem and this level where uh, my family went, like, what? what the fuck is going on with you
0: Mm. how hard was that having to eventually tell them
1: well luckily we've always been really close and as adults we found it quite easy to share things with each other and open up about our personal lives
0: not all families by the way do that
1: no i know i know (laughs) i am i I am lucky in that regard but i told them because it was like i I knew i'd have to tell them eventually you couldn't hide that really. yeah and i was you know there were times when i'd go and i'd say to my sibling or something or one of my brothers hey i'll come over after work i'll be there about seven Really, that's because I know that I can get to the pub by six, pick up, have a couple pints. Before I know it, it's nine o'clock. I'm jumping on the bus to go see my brother two hours late. So it's it's hard to hide. Eventually, they're going to start wondering, like, why, why is he always so late? Why has he got so much energy when he gets here, you know?
0: One of the qualities, I think, that addicted people can do, like you said, is A, sort of having to borrow money off people, but also not turning up on time. Sort of letting people down, I think, is maybe the right way to put it, and... You having to rely on, and we'll get to this in a bit, but you having to rely on Amy for a lot of things and finances and stuff. And, and one thing you said to me really affecting your newspaper affair, you said, I kept doing it knowing it would break her heart. Is that the reality of addiction people don't see, that you were really trying, but you just weren't in control?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of people do treat addiction as if it's like, oh, you just you can control yourself, but you just don't want to a lot of the time especially when i look back in it it's like it doesn't even feel like it was myself it really felt like someone else was behind the wheel like i was not like quite mind controlled but autopilot almost yeah yeah, yeah it was, it's, it's almost like remembering yourself in a dream where you it's kind of like a hazy memory
0: so at that point how was your mental health state and how was your perception with them did you feel like you were valuing the cocaine more than them
1: yeah, definitely. I-, I was valuing the cocaine more than everything. It made me feel at the time like it was the best feeling I was ever going to feel, and it was fulfilling anything I'd been lacking in my life. The vacuum. Really. It was filling. Yeah, it, it was yeah. completely filling that any feeling that I'd want to feel or thing that I'd want to be. I felt like when I was on cocaine, that's what I was. You know, I felt like more charismatic, more likable, and mm. more confident, more happy with myself. That's why, for me, part of why I was so moorish is because. It was like I was desperately trying to keep that feeling of Mm. confidence in myself.
0: What was your lowest moment?
1: There was a moment I basically, I went to a dealer, I went to my dealer and I I borrowed Coke off them saying I'd pay them back. And uh, I knew that they could, at the time, I knew they could really have done with the money and I knew I didn't have any money to pay them, but I just did it anyway. And to be honest, I'm sure a lot of people do that with their dealers. But for me, I knew that they they really needed that money at that time. I was just kind of like, fuck it. And I even thought myself at the time, like, well, even if I burn this bridge because of this, it will be worth it anyway because it's probably something I should stop. But it was like, yeah, afterwards I felt terrible because...
0: Mm. I was going to say, that was going to be my next question. So you did have your morality still, but it was just broken. Your moral compass yeah. just, like, was hanging by a thread. It was
1: almost like I was I was watching myself doing these horrible things. And I just, I knew it was bad. And I felt the guilt and all the emotions that come with it. But I just did it anyway.
0: When did the morality come back? Or come back enough that you wouldn't do actions like that?
1: I think it was after I stopped doing it in lockdown that I kind of reflected on everything that I'd done and the choices I'd made while I was kind of in that year and a half period. Yeah, for me, lockdown was great. Not Obviously, there was so many negatives to COVID and everything, but for me, you know, there was a blessing in disguise because it it forced me to have to step away from that life and meeting those people and seeing them on a regular basis. Because even though I was living outside of London at this point in the February that I stopped, I was still, every Friday night, I was going into London just for that. and um, It was a fixture. Yeah. yeah. And every, all week, I would look forward to that, and it was my highlight of my week.
0: Given what you've said so far, mate, would you say that you have an addictive personality, or were you exploring those substances through underlying trauma?
1: Um, or both? I think it is both. Yeah, there was definitely the escapism and the trying to repair myself somehow but at the same time i have had an addictive personality in most things i can remember you know it's whether it comes to uh certain types of food or video games or anything that i just immediately form habits and you know even if i if i do something for two or three days that i really enjoy even after a couple days i will just get the urge it will be that same time of day "Oh, oh i should do that now i'm still getting better at you know we all are having a handle on but you're but
0: you're you feel you seem like a lot better than ever before yeah yeah yeah, i I feel a lot better than ever before let's talk about positives now then let's talk about recovery so the turning point that you said was really profound on you was actually an encounter with your dealer was it the same one we've just spoken about or was it a different it was the same same one yeah
1: yeah that was kind of like one of the first ones
0: what happened there that made it so profound I just realised that I'd told myself,
1: oh, okay, well, you know, you, Alex, you're a good person. You do the right thing. And in this instance, that was something where it was like, I did such a wrong thing that it was a wake-up call because it's like, oh, it's something I'd never thought I would do or something that I thought I would be against. And then here I am doing it because just for a tiny little wrap of Coke, mm. that's not that even that great.
0: You started going to narcotics anomalous meetings too. Mm. So what was your experience like there? Did you feel at this point you were ready to give up or not?
1: Sort of. I think I'd very much realized that it was a big problem by this point. I definitely didn't feel ready to give up. Because almost every, at least once a week, I'd do a talk in the meetings. And I could stand up and say my bit.
0: you go, hi, I am Alex. Yeah. Everyone goes, hi, Alex. Yeah, and
1: (laughs) I'm an addict, yeah. Every time we'd just talk about how fucking bored I was. And I was like, I'm going to the gym. I'm eating healthy foods. Why does life still suck? You know, Mm. and that's all I can remember is just how mundane and dull those months were. There was about two months that I was sober and um, going to these meetings. And I like, you know, even for a bit, I cut out alcohol and everything. And um, God, I I barely remember any of it because it was that boring. It's just, you know, and that's not to do with. Them and and that, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah that's not yeah. saying oh, drugs are great, do drugs if you want to have fun in life. It's more that I got so used to it that I was gonna have to take time in order to appreciate sober life
0: and get used to a new normal yeah,
1: exactly it wasn't that it was boring, it was that it was different and that I you weren't high all the time yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and I'm sure it, in many ways that makes me boring, you know
0: <laughs> is that what you thought that being sober meant you being boring now,
1: not me being boring. You know, I thought, I'm, I'm still the same person fundamentally, but I was like, well, I am also going to... Like, I've fundamentally changed the chemistry of my brain now, maybe to such a degree that I am never going to find sobriety as fun as if I'd never done
0: drugs. Another turning point for you is when you went out with your friends who were doing cocaine mm-hmm. as well, and something changed in your outlook towards them. So what yeah. was
1: it? What we would used to do is we would... As a group you know it wouldn't be like the same people every time but whoever's there we'd go to a pub spend two or three hours in the pub maybe four hours you know every now and then we'll sneak off into the bathroom and and do a line and then we'd go back to someone's house who lived five minutes up the road and then we'd spend all night in that flat just like listening to music chatting shit doing lines and for months at least I had been doing it very happily and Towards the end, I remember there was yeah there was one night where I just looked at us and I looked around the room, and it was (laughs) the first time yourself
0: from above come back in yeah and and it was like like, for the first
1: time ever I was like oh my god this is so sad I was felt like I was watching it from outside you know looking in and I don't know what caused that feeling it might have just been a sort of a growing awareness that I got from slowly identifying it as a problem and hearing all the stereotypes about like coke users and things like that and then suddenly looking around and i i think it was just it's just the build-up that got to this point where i realized that all the stereotypes i was thinking about i'm like that's me
0: was it your self-worth maybe having a a comeback and saying i'm not wanting to do this anymore or
1: i honestly looking back at it i can't identify what it was but it's it's very likely that there was that involved
0: you were quite a high functioning addict alex Mm -hmm. so in that moment did you see in them what other people might have seen in you when you were in your worst?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And was that it was frightening. Like, it was frightening because I remembered all the times I'd been out and, you know, and I had had a lot to drink and I had been outside to smoke several times and had had like four or five lines. And I remember thinking I was really suave and sophisticated. <laughs> and I don't think I was ever a gurning mess, but I definitely don't think I was like this kind of like Humphrey Bogart type (laughs) that I was thinking of, (laughs) you know, I think I was much, probably more of a bit more manic.
0: So on the flip side, did you also see in that moment what you had the potential to be rather than the person who you were stuck in that period?
1: Yeah, there was a very much a feeling of, you know, being at a crossroads and it's like either I can just continue down this path because another dealer I had, he was in his sort of like late thirties and he, been dealing for 10 years and he kept talking about how he wanted to get out of it and that it was ruining his life and everything and i kept telling him like you know like dude you have like a fucking engineering degree like go and do, do something it, but yeah, he has yeah. a 10-year gap in his resume you know and he had, he had so many issues going on and i just thought i'm not gonna let myself get to this point where i'm in his mental state at 38 whatever it was
0: Did that scare you seeing that you could have gone down the path that he did
1: yeah yeah I think it was genuinely looking at the two dealers that I had who were actually both were at similar age, like mid to late thirties and seeing the kind of situation that that lifestyle had, or at least, you know, or maybe the
0: lifestyle that it had got them in or the lifestyle associated, you know, with their life. Yeah. You had a couple of relapses on this journey too, Alex, and relapses do happen. And I'm a big advocate on this podcast of saying that we wouldn't be human if people didn't have relapses. Mm-hmm. Did you feel more stigma about the relapses than you did with the addiction at the start or not
1: not so much from other people it was more internal internal yeah yeah. i was blaming myself and disappointment in myself that Mm. i would do it and whatever it was if it was like coke or weed it was the first line i'd have or the first drag i'd have or even even the moments building up to it there was just this huge amount of guilt and i could feel it you know like that that when your heart falls out your butt yeah when
0: you lose your phone sort of thing when you feel like you've lost your phone that sort of thing
1: well, like, you know when you're like you're in a relationship and you know that breakup is like right around the corner and you mm. know it's coming and you just ha- you're foreboding, just, yeah. yeah, and you just this horrible kind of your heart like is just like thumping in your chest and it feels heavy and it was it was that feeling it was like, it almost like a heart yeah like kind of heartbroken feeling mm. as I was doing this drug and it was like I I couldn't even enjoy it then because I just felt too bad.
0: So you felt like you were letting yourself down rather than other people.
1: Yeah. Because whenever I did have a, a relapse, one of my sisters was very concerned. But the rest of my family, they they were a bit like they weren't judging me at all. They were like, oh, oh well, like if you still like being very supportive, but
0: Was that good? Would you
1: prefer them to be more tough love or I don't know if I'd prefer it, but maybe <laughs> I maybe it would have been uh better for me, yeah. I would say that yeah, sometimes you do need a little bit of tough love and you do need a little bit of that fear of disappointing people mm. to sort yourself out.
0: Like you said, you've been clean since february 2020 so who's the alex we meet now
1: i definitely still feel like someone in recovery it's been a long time in some way to a degree yeah 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 that's very true i think when it comes to cocaine i'm very happy that it's not in my life anymore and there's there's a lot of benefits and if i had the opportunity there's too many risks to get it back in my life i would say though that you know with the weed it's it's something that
0: You found that a lot harder to give up, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah. Is there a particular reason for that?
1: I mean, it's probably because it's not so expensive and it's not, you know, it doesn't quite change how I act and think so much.
0: doesn't wipe your weekend out either, does it? (laughs) No, no, (laughs) exactly. Not in the same way, you know, you're not wiping out an entire day afterwards or something like that.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm not staying up till nine in the morning, ten in the morning, because I want that last little line. And then you sleep all day and then you wake up at six in the evening and what time is it? Uh, You know, disoriented. Mm. and yeah, there's not that with weed and I
0: think that's that's what makes it a lot easier to continue. Given that you said weed was your best method of suppressing your emotions or feeling like you were dealing with them but actually suppressing them mm-hmm. Were you scared of giving it up or have you been able to express those emotions in more healthier ways now?
1: I feel like I've been able to express them a bit more healthily.
0: You said to me your fair that you were chasing a high I was never going to achieve again. So what do you think that high would have given you that recovery and self-acceptance wouldn't?
1: You know, thinking about it, I don't think that there's anything I would have actually got from (laughs) achieving that same high, you know, that that first high feeling. It was more a substitute for acceptance and, you know, all that.
0: Before we reflect on your journey, Alex, I want to talk about your relationship with Amy because at your lowest points, she really, really supported you, didn't she? Really did, So tell me how she helped your mental health at the time and now.
1: Well, as well as multiple times financially supporting me, she, just by caring and really showing that she cared, it was enough to kind of at least make me aware of certain things that I might not have been aware of. Like all my siblings, my other siblings at least, they obviously cared. I know they cared, but they seemed a little bit less happy to talk about it. Or they were like, oh, I don't really know how I could ask him, you know, a little bit scared to broach the subject. Whereas Amy would just go straight into it.
0: So she was more forthright and more emotionally intelligent by the sounds of it not that they weren't but more
1: yeah yeah and she was getting really emotionally affected by it and and so that made her even more vocal about it
0: was that a trigger for you to stop or one of the triggers or yeah. one trigger to want to stop i should say
1: yeah whether it's for healthy reasons or not i should stop because i don't want to hurt someone else which is you know a feeling that eventually got there it wasn't there initially but mm. it definitely wasn't a feeling of like oh, i should do this for me it was like well if i should do it for someone it should be for at least my sister who's been really helpful.
0: Do you think you've made it to this point without her?
1: I think there's a a much higher chance that I'd still be doing it on a regular basis or have had massive issues along the line if it wasn't for her.
0: Having people in your corner is massive when you're going through trauma, we're going through addiction, we're going through anything that's related to mental illness, Alex. How important was she for you in your bad times and how important is she now in the good times to help you stay there
1: still equally as relevant (laughs) she was very much a rock and there was a number of people in the family having issues at the time and she was there for everyone and she was going through her own stuff so yeah i i really value kind of i mean through this obviously i valued her as a sister but since then i've got a whole new appreciation for Mm. her
0: so it's made you closer
1: yeah definitely and even now like you when know, we're still really close and we hang out fairly often and talk on the phone every now and then so
0: mm. she's obviously going to listen to this pod Alex yeah yeah so as she's listening to this now wherever she is what would you say to her
1: um nothing I haven't said before really um <laughs> just that you know I appreciate her and that she is incredible and that she is you know I have often considered her kind of like the glue that Holds a lot of the family to the I, together. I sense
0: that vibe when we're out together. So,
1: you know, she's the one who organizes things and yeah. makes things happen. And yeah, just that I really appreciate her and that she really deserves any happiness coming her way.
0: Let's reflect now. So, firstly, what has this journey taught you about yourself? That as stubborn
1: as I can be, I should learn to happily rely on other people. <laughs> and that having people in your corner and relying on other people is actually a really incredible freeing experience because sharing your problems you know that problem shared is a problem halved kind of feeling it really does make you feel better knowing that someone's there for you
0: and as a final question if you could go back and talk to that 17 year old alex who didn't have any friends or was struggling to be popular in school or is hiding 3ds behind the back of the bed or maybe the 21 year old alex who was struggling to give up weed or maybe the Alex in the depths of despair and cocaine addiction. What would you say to him knowing what you do now? I think
1: the most important thing would be to tell myself that I do matter and that I am important just like everyone else and that just because I don't know what I want to be or where I want to go in life or what might make me happy doesn't mean that that idea is not out there and that just because I can't find it doesn't mean that I should give up all hope.
0: final topic of conversation Alex and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests this is a general natter and chat about mental health so firstly excluding the shitty weather we've got outside Mm. on my window how would you say your mental health is at the moment mate
1: it's pretty good yeah I I would say it's better than it's ever been like I said you know all the chronic depression as a teenager (laughs) and all that stuff it's like you know you can only go up from there but there's still so you know a little bit to be desired Mm -hmm. I think that it's very much dependent on how productive I'm being i sit around for two or three days doing nothing i'm going to start to have little negative thoughts at the back of my head but if as long as i'm getting on with something and i'm doing at least a little bit of uni work or something every day then there's a satisfaction that comes with just doing something and that i think is enough for me to feel on a day-to-day basis feel satisfied
0: what age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health for the first time and you realized that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health
1: probably last year was the first time i really noticed really yeah you know there have been a lot of things building and it was one of those things where you know when i was 24 it's like oh i'm self-aware i know how i'm feeling (laughs) and then when you're 26 27 you're like i didn't know shit yeah yeah and then then it's like every five years or so you're like oh my god i was an idiot five years ago (laughs) so i'd say really like the first time i really felt like i had like a grasp on my own mental health and everything was last year
0: Tell me about the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health. So who is it with? What impact did it have? And how do you look back on it? Did it feel like a big burden or a big weight had been lifted off your shoulders? Or actually, did it feel like something quite insignificant, easy, and normal to do?
1: I've had a number of therapists in my life for different reasons. And I found that most of them weren't super helpful. There was, right. there was one that really did help me. And that I had that when I was about 25. And a lot of what he's, he taught me, is, I think, what allowed me to kind of have that kind of awareness that I have today. It, and it was all about whenever there's a problem that comes up in my head, it was mainly about just identifying it as a problem. And then in doing that, you kind of lessen the problem just by automatically making it something that you can handle.
0: Because you identify as a thought rather than yeah, ins- a, a, yeah a path that you have to go down. Yeah,
1: instead of this just this thought that you can't escape, it's a problem that you can tackle. It's an obstacle that you can get over.
0: What triggers do you have that affect your mental health? So it could be a sound, it could be a sensation, it could be being with a certain person, it could be a social environment, book, film, or have you not figured all of them out yet?
1: Oh yeah, I'm still still figuring them out, I'd say. I think that, yeah, stagnation and kind of doing nothing. Unproductivity. Yeah, 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 lack of product, yeah. That really is a big trigger for me. After a week, yeah, a few days or a week or so of doing nothing, I start to just get really...
0: Like restless and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, and
1: start to have a lot of you know, self-esteem issues and little jealous thoughts about stuff. Not like necessarily like
0: romantic jealous thoughts, but just kind of like... Comparing yourself up to to yeah, other people yeah. sort of thing? Yeah. What tools and methods on the other side then do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have worked? Maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? I know weed you tried and didn't work, so we exclude <laughs> that one.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I don't recommend trying that one. Exercise as always you know helps pretty much everyone with kind of any anything issues like this but there's a certain level of physicality you know like you feel good just to get the endorphins going and everything but then also if you're that way inclined and you want to work on your body to look a certain way then there's also that satisfaction as well like i find one thing that has helped a lot with my self-esteem is literally just going into the mirror and like looking in the mirror and telling yourself that like you look good and that you feel good and that you're great you
0: sound like a motivational speaker (laughs) Uh, well i mean
1: i hope so i mean that works on me that's what they do on the that's what
0: they do on the stages don't they they go Um, yeah high five yourself in the mirror and all that yeah and it and it works for you
1: it does genuinely work i mean i think if you have to be in the right you can't just go and say it to yourself like you have (laughs) to you have to be really willing to tell you like to believe yourself
0: what is the best book or mental health bible i call it that you've read for your mental health so it could be mental health related it could be completely non-mental health related any book that's really helped you or do you not read <laughs> i i've not i've not always been a reader but like in recent years i've
1: not read any fiction okay or let's anything. say podcast let's say film like... let's go let's go outside of that
0: any piece of visual or audio or written content that has helped you with your mental health Oh, I'm, I'm really sorry. I can't think of anything. Um, don't worry, don't like,
1: worry. It's one of those things where I'm on the spot and I'm probably going to leave and think of you, something It'll happen. Away, You'll yeah.
0: text me off this guy. Yeah. I've just thought of something yeah. and I'll be like, oh, don't worry. I've got one more question, mate. Okay. And it's another broad one. So I'll give you all a right. bit of time if you need to answer it. Okay. What more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds or walks of life feel comfortable, feel safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if they want to do it? One thing that can be done is offering some
1: sort of counseling in schools. I think it's not something that you can enforce at home, but I think that giving children and young boys an outlet in which they can go and express how they feel, like whenever they want in a safe environment, that's something that I never felt like I had when I was a kid. I had a chaplain.
0: I went to a church. Yeah. Who the fuck wants to talk to a chaplain? Yeah. Sorry. No offense if there's any chaplains listening, but I didn't want to talk to a priest about my mental health. Oh,
1: exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's like, what? Yeah, it's just. I think it's not for everyone, is it? No, kids are going to want to talk to someone who's a bit kind of like young and gets not, them. Yeah, yeah, that's that's an improvement that could be made. I think because I think that that feeling of you know wanting to talk and being open and talk about your emotions and stuff—that's something that you should encourage from a young age. Otherwise, you know, they're going to get to adulthood feeling that like they can't do yeah. it. Yeah,
0: it's gonna be like the Coke and the Mentos bottle. Like for me when i yeah. was that when i was 18 it's just everything exploding into, into, yeah, into yeah into one moment because of 15 years of suppression on that note alex roberts thank you so much for coming on just checking podcast mate oh, no problem i was really happy to be here thanks for having me Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big thank you to Alex for being my special guest on this episode's pod and talking about his mental health, his addiction and his recovery for the first time. Addiction is not a straight line. It's complex, it's grey, and can affect many people, not just the person who's addicted. If there's someone in your life who's addicted to anything, not just drugs, I hope this podcast has helped you understand them a little bit better. As always, I'll sign us off by saying thank you to all the Venters who have tuned into this edition of the pod. And as always, as well, if you've liked what you've heard, give it a share on social media. Tell your friends, tell your work colleagues about it, tell your family. If you're feeling generous, you can drop us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing at Vent, please consider supporting our Patreon. That's at www.patreon.com slash VentHelpUK. If you don't want to do that, you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe. That link is on our link tree, which is across all of our channels. Please go and buy a ticket to the next Just Checking In Live, the third edition. That link is also on our link tree and across our social media. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember guys, it is always okay to vent.